You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 271. Change isn't going to be given to us. We have to make it. Eva Longoria. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, today we continue our Sundance Film Festival coverage with... A remarkable guest. We have today on the show actor, writer, producer, director, philanthropist, Eva Longoria. Now, Eva is the director of the new film La Guerra Civil, which is a documentary about the epic boxing battle between Oscar de la Hoya and Julio Chavez and how they kind of split the community of Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and then Mexicans and how it kind of like put a riff in between households. This is how important this fight was to the Mexican community. And it was a wonderful documentary. I had the chance to watch it and I advise everybody to check it out when it comes out. Now, Eva and I spoke about how she came up as an actress, the tough times, and how she did side hustles and and, and hustled hard to get where she's at and making a living as she was hustling for her dream as a actress. I mean, when she got a job in The Young and the Restless, she still kept her J job just to be able to keep doing Young and the Restless because they paid so badly. And, you know, she is truly a force of nature. And I had an absolute ball talking to her. I think you're going to really enjoy this one, guys. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Eva Longoria. I'd like to welcome to the show Eva Longoria. How are you doing, Eva? I'm good. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. As a fellow Latino, or Latin X, as they say nowadays, um, Latin, <laughs> like a Latin, uh, I appreciate everything you've done for for us as a community in general. And and you know, growing up has been it was very difficult for me to see a Latino 
filmmaker in general. I mean, it was Robert for me uh, when I yeah. was coming up. It was Robert Rodriguez. And I was just like, oh, my God, there's a director who's Latino. So that's amazing. Yeah. This is the first time I saw it. So uh, I, I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for all the stuff that you've done for our community in the, in the film industry. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for uh, talking about this uh, amazing documentary. I, I loved it, by the way. I absolutely loved it. I knew about it. Um, I knew about the story just being Latino in general. And I would tell like I tell my dad, I'm like, do you remember this fight? He goes, Who, if you're Latino, you remember that fight. Um, but I didn't really understand the whole back and forth between the subcultures, if you will, of uh in Mexico, Mexican American, anything. But before we get started, and we're going to talk all about the documentary, is it how did you go from almost becoming a physical therapist to becoming <laughs> an actor? <laughs> I know my dream was to work for the Dallas Cowboys. Like I was like, I'm going to be a physical trainer for the Dallas Cowboys, and I've arrived. I've arrived. <laughs> I I was in a beauty pageant. It was a scholarship pageant in Texas. It was my final year in college. I ran out of money. I ran out of Pell Grant. Like I had no way to finish my senior year. And my friend's like, hey, why don't you um, enter the scholarship pageant? And I was like, what's that? And she's like, you know, you, if you if you win, you get money for school. So I did. And I was like, I'd never been. I mean, and I'm from Texas, like we're born and bred football and pageants. And I <laughs> I'd never seen one. I'd never been in one. And um, and so my goal was to win fourth place because I was like, if I could just get fourth place, it was like books. Right. I was like, hey, I'll cover my books. And then like third place was like books, tuition. And then, uh, you know, second place was books, tuition, boarding. And then the first place was books, tuition, boarding and a stipend. Like I was like, look, I ain't aiming high. <laughs> I just want, I just want, uh, uh, my books. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, they called the winners and they were like fourth place is so-and-so. And I was like, oh man, I didn't get it. And I ended up winning the whole thing. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. That, oh, cool. Cool. I got, I can pay my senior year. And then that pageant made me, I had, it was like a feeder to go into the next level. And I was like, oh, I don't, I'm not a, <laughs> I don't want to make this a, a, a thing. thing. I, wanted my tuition. And so I had to go into the next one, which was Miss Corpus Christi, um, where I'm from. And I won that one. Oh. And uh, and literally my mom was like, this is not your future. Like you cannot enter one more pageant. I'm like, I don't want to. I don't know what's happening. I don't know. What Especially growing up as La Prieta Fea, which is like the ugly dark one. Um, and so I, uh, in that prize package, Miss Corpus Christi was a trip to Los Angeles. And that was the first time I was like, oh, that'd be fun. I've never been outside of Texas. And um, and it was like a talent competition in L.A. that we had to go to. And so I came and then I I won the talent competition and I was like, what is going on? I don't know what I'm doing. And and literally uh, agents and managers wanted to sign me and because it was like it was like the Latin craze. I remember it was like Ricky Martin, oh, Ricky Martin, Jennifer Lopez, Enrique Iglesias. Yeah. Live in La Vida Loca was, you know, the hit song at the time. And they were like, oh, my God, if you're Latina, you're going to like clean up here in Hollywood. They're looking for Latinas. And I was like, oh, OK. And look, I just look from one day to the next said, OK, I think I'm going to be an actor just like that. And it, it was because I had my bachelor's degree that I was like, well, I can get a job anywhere. It's not like I'm going to be a starving actor. I can go get a job. So I had a lot of confidence that I would be OK, um, but still not knowing, you know, the industry or anything. I had twenty three dollars in my bank account. Now, and you decided that, you know, you just like I, I heard somewhere that you just called up your parents is like, yeah, hey, I'm staying. I'm not I'm not going. I'm not flying back. 
I didn't even fly back. That's right. when I moved away. I didn't even fly back to go, okay, let me prepare for this move. No, I just, I came here for three days. And on the third day, I said, I think I'm going to stay. And <laughs> my mom and my mom was like, okay, you're going to do what? And I said, I think I'm going to be an actor. I mean, I don't know what that means, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to just stay a little longer and see what happens. And my mom said that, well, you know, at least you can get a job. You, you have your degree. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go get a job. And, um, you know, went, got a job and, and then became a background actor and, uh, 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 you know, a uh, atmosphere actor uh, for a couple of years. Cause I was like, let me, let me be on a set. I don't even, I've never been on a set. Maybe I should figure that out. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Now, did you, did you feel, because I mean, everything seems very serendipitous that you've just, that story you've told me, did you feel like there was some force, something guiding you during this process? I say this. It's so funny you say that. I always say that. I was like, I don't know what it was, but there was something just that felt right every step of the way. Like they were like, I said, I'm going to stay. I wasn't scared. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have money. And I was like, I'll be okay. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> I, 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 maybe it's naive, you know, naive. Youth. It's youth. It's youth. Is bliss. Like if I knew the dangers, <laughs> maybe right. I wouldn't have done Right, exactly. No, it's like so. Any any actress is living, uh, listening right now. Please don't do what Eva did. Don't just don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, I, I had I had like five roommates in a one bedroom of of people who were like, hey, come live with us. I go, okay. Like not knowing them, I was just like, I could, I could have been murdered. I mean, you know what I mean? Like this, this, something this was something bad. was guiding and protecting you during this process because the story that you just told me is it ends at and and Dateline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that and like. There's no recipe for success in Hollywood. So let's say you do exactly what I did. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You wouldn't get the same result. It doesn't work that way. No, it's different timing, different place, different everything. I mean, you hit at the right point, right time. But like you were saying, it took you a little while before you started getting some jobs. How did you keep going? Like just, I mean, I'm assuming like I always treat that whenever I'm, I'm casting for a movie, I'm always treat, I treat actors with such respect because it's so hard and going out on auditions and getting beat up and, and people just walking in and like, oh, you're too this or you're too that. And it's just so, it's so rough. How did you keep going when there was no real signs that this was yeah. the right path for you. Right. 100%. Well, you know, I, when I came to Hollywood, I went to a temp agency to get a job because I was like, well, they'll have a job for me tomorrow. And that company said, why don't you work here? And I said, what is it? What do you, what do you guys do? And they were like, we're headhunters. You find people jobs and you know, it's like matchmaking job people, you know? And I go, okay. I mean, not knowing anything, but I was so good at it. I made a lot of money. So again, I wasn't ever the struggling actor. I was so good. I was like, this is so easy, this headhunting <laughs> thing. But I just like, I knew how to find match people up with jobs. And all my actor friends were uh, jobless. So I'm like, I got tons of supply, you know. <laughs> right, and, right. Um, and because of that, I got an apartment, I had a car, I paid off my student debt. I paid off my credit card debt. I had headshots. I took acting classes. I, you know, I really um, invested all anything that I made back into myself, right? And um, and it was through one of those workshops or seminars or something that a casting director saw me and said, "Hey, you should audition for Young and the Restless." And I was like, "Okay," and and did. And then that was like my big break was Young and the Restless. 
And um, and it paid so badly. It was like two cents for the week that I kept my headhunting job. So I was a headhunter in my dressing room at Young and the Restless because it just it was like I was not making enough at Young and the Restless to quit my job for and for two years. I did this, did both jobs. Talk about hustle. Yeah. I know that's the other thing is like it is about hustle and it's about, you know, being resourceful. And that's life, by the way. That's if I if you drop me in the middle of Paris, I'm going to figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. I I speak the language. I don't know, but I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat well and I'm going to I'm going to figure it out. And that's I think what's missing a lot from a lot of the younger generation today is they're just not that resourceful. And they have all the tools in the world at their fingertips. I didn't have an iPhone. I had a Thomas guide and a and a printout from Google that I had to follow, you know, uh, and, and so, yeah, I was like, oh, if I had the tools that you have today, um, you know, God, I, I would have gone far. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's the same here. I mean, my, my first director's reel cost 50 grand because I had to shoot it on 35, you know, and it was like now we just grab a phone and you could be shooting commercials and music videos and short films all day. There's so much technology. I think it's because, you know, you and I are of similar vintage. So, you know, we, when we grew, when we grew up, there was, there wasn't anything like I did. I remember there's no internet. I remember very easily. There was no internet. I remember printing out the Google maps in LA and having the, 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 you know, the directions like printed out line by line, driving around LA, trying to drop off a demo reel for, you know, an editing gig or something like that. Backstage West. <laughs> I submitted myself for auditions and I would send my headshot and I would use the postage from the company I worked at so I didn't have to buy stamps. Obviously. And so I like at the end of the day, I'd sneak off and I'd go bah, 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 and I put postage on like 20 submissions. And I so I was like, oh, yeah, I was a hustler. I did background work just to eat and I would steal the bananas and apples and take it home because I was like, well, I might not eat tomorrow. So let me let me take some of these bananas. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, you you struggled, but you you were you, something again was guiding you and giving you these opportunities that normal, normal, the normal acting story in L.A. is not yours by any stretch of the imagination, even at the very beginning, like you're you're living, you're eating, you're you're leading well, uh, you have a job, you have a car, you paid off student debt like this is unheard of for a, a struggling actor. Uh, but yet, even then, when you got your first big break, you're like, yeah, I still going to keep my day job. <laughs> yeah, I still like my car. So I think I'm I'm going to I like my apartment. Let me let me just keep doing this. Also, you know, I. um what you said, like, what kept you going? Because there was no signpost to say success is a year from now. Hang on. Um, I felt it. And I remember my boss at that company. He goes, you know how much money you can make here? You, you're so good at this. Give up that dumb dream. Like, you know how many people make it in Hollywood? One in a million. One in a million. Like, you, come on, just focus over here and forget that stuff. And I said, I know. And I'm that one. Like I'm taking up that space. So I've got to hurry up and be prepared. Like I really thought that I really, I never gave myself a, until if I don't make it well by 30, I'm moving back home. Like I never had a plan B. I was just like, no, this this will happen. And I also approached it like a business. I knew exactly how to invest in, you know, what I need classes. I don't know how to do that. I'm not good at that. I'm going to do this. I, you know, and at that time, you know, when you're going out for Latin roles, they're like, can you do it with an accent? And I'm like, I don't, I don't have an accent. Like I, I, there's other levels of, uh, muchas gracias. 
and there's other levels of Latinos, you know, and it was like Rosie Perez. Uh, okay, gracias. Um, there's other levels of uh, uh, dimensions of Latinos that don't sound like Rosie Perez, you know, and um, and so I was like, I got, I need an accent coach. I don't, I don't have an accent. I need to get one. <laughs> and so right. I did that. When people come to Hollywood, they try to lose their accent. I was like, I was trying to get an accent. <laughs> like <laughs> now, so it sounds like that you really put an intention involved. You really had an intention and almost manifested what you were trying to get. Like you'd like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm there already. I'm in your mind. You were already successful, even though there was no signs at all. And there's a difference between delusion because we all. We all understand. We all, I might have been a little delusional. You I might have been a little delusional. Listen, listen, Eva, look, to be in our business, you've got to be insane. you got to be insane in yeah. general. It's an insane business. It's like running off with the circus, basically. You know, so yeah. it is It is an insanity to be with. But yeah, there is a little, you need a little delusion. To even think you could, to, you make a movie is a delusion. Yeah. <laughs> it's insanity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a little delusional. But the other thing that I had on my side was, and I'm an insane optimist and a hard worker. So I knew those two went together. But I also felt, um, I felt like, um, uh, I had, I have very tough skin. So the nose didn't affect me. And I got thousands, thousands. The day I got Desperate Housewives, the day I auditioned for Desperate Housewives, I had nine auditions that day. And I was changing in my car, driving from Disney, back to Warner Brother, back to Disney, back to Sony, back to Culver City. And it was like, oh my, I ran out of gas that day. That's how many auditions I had. And Desperate Housewives was at eight at night. It was the last audition. I'm changing in the car and I get there and I'm exhausted. And I just was like, you know, it, you know, the other seven auditions today said no. Already knew I didn't get them, and and it was like, uh, you know, in the car, doctor, okay, lawyer, okay, ugh. and then Gabby was like sexy, and I'm like trying to put on this tight dress in the car. I get down, and 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 Mark Cherry is in the audition, and he goes, "So, what do you think of the script?" And I was like, "What? I didn't read the script." Like in my head, I'm like, "I read my part." Like, who has time? I had eight auditions today. I'm not going to read eight scripts. And I said, you know what? And I was just done. I was done for the day. And I said, you know what? I didn't read it. I didn't read the script, but I read my part and my part's really good. And uh, and he he told me later he knew I was Gabrielle in that moment because it was the most selfish thing to say. <laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but I'm amazing. I'm amazing. <laughs> And I was like, so can I just do the audition so you can say no so I can go? Like, I, I it was just, yeah. you know, and, and then you did it again the next day, you know, and you started all over. So I had this and I have very thick skin. Even to this day, I really never take things personal. If I'm if I, you know, if I get reviewed badly or this, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's not your cup of tea. Now, do you feel that you getting Desperate Housewives later in a little bit later in life because you weren't you weren't you know 20 you know i think you were 30 you were like nine yeah exactly 29 when you got it so you already kind of had an established you've established who your identity was at that point do you think that helped you deal with the tsunami tsunami excuse me of fame and criticism and love and hate and everything that comes along with that package did that help you with that because that crushes Many. Yeah, 1000%. I knew who I was. You know, I probably knew who I was when I landed in Hollywood. You know, I, I didn't drink. I wasn't into drugs. I didn't smoke. Like I was pretty, you know, and everybody's like, oh my God, Los Angeles, you're going to, you know, 
get into drugs and, and trouble. And I was like, there's drugs and trouble in Texas. Like, this is the same thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But I had a really strong sense of who I was. And so when this fame hits you, I thank God I was 29. I mean, because I was like, you know, you especially back then, the tabloids were like the leading thing, not like social media today, but like mm. the tabloids defined you. And so it was like America's sweetheart, America's sex kitten. And then you kind of became that, right? Like if you look at Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera coming up at the same time, and one was America's sweetheart and one was the bad girl. And they were babies and they kind of go, okay, I got to play the part now. I've got to be the bad girl. And, and so they tried to do that with me. And I was like, ha! you know, no, that's not, <laughs> I'm not that. And, uh, and I'm very grounded. You know, I have a really great family and I have, you know, great friends. My friends back then are, you know, the, the couches I slept on and the, I didn't have a dress for an audition and my best friend, you know, lent me a dress. Um, they're still my friends today. They're the girlfriends that, you know, travel with me and lived with me and, you know, but I, I, you know, they were there for me when I had nothing. So, you know, so, you know, that they're, they're true friends at that point. Yeah. It's yeah. You never, cause you never know. Fame is such a double-edged sword. So many people want to be rich and famous and you're like, but look at how many people who are rich and famous who, who are destroyed by it. It's just Hollywood is riddled with stories like that. You're an exception. You're like, you're an anomaly. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. But you remember E True Hollywood stories? Oh, like of course, of course. This thing that was on E, and it was like, you know, she was, you know, she was such a pretty girl from Missouri. And then, and you're like, <laughs> and so, and then they tell you like the downfall of everybody. And I remember we premiered, and literally three days later, there was an E True Hollywood story on me. And I go, what did I do? Did I fall from great? Did I do drugs? What happened? Like I was so, I was like, is is this the, the beginning of the end now? Like, is this supposed to happen later? It was so funny. Oh God! And then of course, any movies that you might have done before Desperate Housewives, they start going into they, they go into the archives of the stuff that you did. They're like, look at what she did back then. Yeah. And I did so many student films for real. You know, yeah. I just needed real. And did so many bad things. And then all of a sudden, I was at Blockbuster. I don't know if people remember, there was a Blockbuster mm -hmm, where you had to mm -hmm. physically go and get a DVD before Netflix mailed them to you. Uh, and uh, and my, I remember going into Blockbuster and my face is on the cover of this film. And I was like, what is that? It was a different title. It was, And it was just a student film I had done. And this director packaged it, sold it on my name. And I never knew until I saw it at Blockbuster. But yeah, yeah. And 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 family comes out of the woodworks, right? Like all these people who are related to you. Yeah. <laughs> so funny story. When I first started out as an editor, as trailer editor, I cut a trailer for one of those films of yours early on. I if Don't you, even say the name. I won't say the name, but I did. I did. <laughs> I did edit it. And I and you were already you were already, you know, uh, Desperate Housewives. And I was oh, seeing there and I'm like. This is so wrong. Like they have her, like you were like, I'm like, you're in the movie for like 15 minutes or 20. Right. Yeah. And they're just like, bam. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, but hey, you know, I had to do a gig. So <laughs> a friend of mine who was on another hit show, and every time he gets uh recognized around the world, he gets so pissed off because he's like, that's all people know me for. And I and every time people come up to me and they go, Gabby Solis, I am like, yes. That's me. You know, I'm just so grateful. And so like, gr so grateful that that 
director thought I had some sort of value because um, that's what you hope for. You know what I mean? You hope right. to have enough value that you can make something happen. No question. And I, I read somewhere that you're an avid med meditator. Uh, how do you, because uh, I've been meditating for years. I meditate hours a day sometimes. Uh, and it's, it's changed my life. How do you use meditation in your balancing your insane world that you live in with all the things that you do and all the plates you spin, uh, you know, mother and philanthropist and actor and director and all these kind of things. How does meditation help you kind of balance yourself and what does it do for you in general? You know what? It really centers you before the day. I have to do it first thing in the morning and it makes me more patient. It makes me have compassion. It makes me have, you know, um, it really just shifts your energy to a place of positivity and a place of gratitude. That's a big one. You know, I really learned also to be aware of how you speak. Right. So I used to be like, oh, I got I have to go to this meeting across town. I have to go to this audition. I have to go do, you know, James Corden or I have to be on Jimmy Kimmel tonight. And it, instead just switching it to, I get to, right. I get to go have a meeting about a project. I want to get off the ground. Like, isn't that what you want? So yeah. why are you going off oh, after, oh, you know, I get to be on Jimmy Kimmel to promote uh, this TV show I was on. I get to, you know, I have to get home and bathe my kid. No, I get to make it home in time to bathe my child and put him to bed. Like I get to do that. I get to cook uh, dinner for my family. And just that little word was through meditation, right? Like uh, be careful of how you speak in life. You know, when people go, how was your day today? You go, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. It's like, I can't, I can't, it's just too much. I'm so busy. And switching that word to productive. How was your day? Productive. Right. I was so productive today. I had eight meetings. I had, you know, this deal go through. I had this conversation with so and so. It was a pretty productive day. It wasn't a busy day. You're not doing busy work. Everything you do during the day is towards a goal, towards something. So so have that gratitude in your words as you approach your day. And that's what meditation does. It really makes you think about things that, that are on autopilot that you you shouldn't be on autopilot about. And yeah, I agree with you 110%. Uh, you also are, a, a, you know, a, an insane philanthropist. You give back so much. Can you just talk a little bit about what giving back means to you and how it affects your life? Because I started, when I started my show six and a half years ago, I was trying to get in. I was trying to, you know, I was trying to knock on the doors and try to get these meetings and try to make connections. And I said, I said, I'm tired of all that. I'm going to start giving back to my, to my community which is filmmakers. And all of a sudden doors swung open and now I get to talk to people like you and all this kind of things. It was because I gave back and, and it's addictive to giving back and, and changing people's lives in whatever which way I can, you know, with the show or with whatever other work I do. So how does that affect you? Yeah, I mean, you hit it right in the nail. I mean, it's it's studies have proven, you know, giving, giving and being charitable um, increases your life's um, uh, uh, fulfillment, right? Like you're like, oh, I, I didn't even know I needed this to be filled. <laughs> and, and then it becomes addictive. Like now I, you know, I travel all over the world. I go to India, I go to, you know, cause I just like love, um, philanthropy and, and, and community efforts. But honestly, it, I grew up with it in my DNA. I mean, I have a special needs sister. Um, she's, she was born with a mental disability. So I grew up in her world. I grew up with, other people helping us, you know, charities 
that, you know, sponsored a trip for her to go to Disneyland, charities who, you know, created after school programs for kids with special needs to have a place to go. And so I always, I always like, who's charity? She's so sweet. She's so nice, that lady, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and so I knew before I was even famous that I was going to, you know, do something charitable and give back. And, and then once I got my platform and my microphone, then I was like, oh, okay, I have something to say. And I could, and I could do some good in the world. Yeah. Now, um, when did you decide that you wanted to make the, or to add directing as part of your resume? Because so many actresses and actors, they just go on their whole life and they're just actors and they don't want to do any directing. But I've seen and I've spoken to many actors who have turned director, um, what it does for them. And it also elongates their career. They can direct until they're whatever and, and just really enjoy that process. What, when did you decide at what point in your career did you go? I think I want to direct, which is the cliche of everything. What I really want to do is direct. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know. I think I'm better at this than these idiots. Um, uh, you know, I, I, people think I'm an actor turned producer director. And I think I was always a producer especially producer. I loved the business side of our business. You know, that's why I, my, my approach with myself was like, business. all right, I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I like, well, how do I set myself up for success? And, um, and I remember when I moved to Hollywood, I checked out, a, I went and bought a book at, um, um, oh my God, Samuel French, right? Oh, of course. And, yeah. Yeah. In Studio City. <laughs> no, in Holly. In, uh, oh, there's Hollywood. another one. That was the second. It was uh, that's before they moved, I think. Yeah. And sunset and um, and uh, how to how to produce one hundred and one. I mean, I, I bought that book first over acting because I was like, well, I got to create, I got to create my own project. So how do I do that? And there was like a sample budget in the book, and I put it on my Excel spreadsheet, and I was like, okay, plugging in numbers, and and uh, and then I I quickly had a. A, a gig with this uh, sh- uh, show called Hot Tamales Live with Kiki Melendez at the Improv. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. And Kiki was like, hey, help me book some comedians. And then I said, well, how are we going to pay them? She's like, I don't know. And then so we asked the Improv, like, well, how much is it to get the night? They had a dead night. And we're like, we want to make it Latin night. Okay, great. You can have the stage. We get the door. You get the drip, you know, and and it was just like you figure it out. Right. And I was like, OK, we watch tapes, VHS tapes of comedians and to book out the night. And and then we got a sponsor. I was like, well, we need a sponsor. Right. We need somebody to pay for this. So we should get um, a tequila. We should get a tequila company to, to to give us money. And then we'll mention the tequila on stage. Like it was all shooting from the hip, you know, wow. and figure out as you went. And I did that first. And then through that. um you know, directed some of the uh, sketches we had on stage. I'm like, no, 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 you've got to come out through there and we're going to hear some props and, you know, blah, blah, and, and fell in love with it. And then, you know, became an actor and then used Desperate Housewives as my film school. I really used, I didn't go to film school, but I was on a set for 10 years. So I was like, paid attention, paid attention to where the camera went, what lenses, what are, what are lenses? What does that mean? 25, 35, 110, 100. Like, what, what, why is that light there? What are you doing? What's a bounce? You know, uh, checking the gate, you know, like you said. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day, checking the gate. What does that mean? Well, you know, I used to load the camera when we, we were one of the last shows to go digital. We were, we shot on film for much longer than other TV shows. And, um, and so I paid attention and I, and I really took advantage of all the directors that came through 
and and ask them questions. And I was just a sponge. Um, and so that's when it was on during Desperados where I said, I think I, I think I want to direct TV. And uh, and then somebody asked me, hey, you want to direct this short film? And I go, yes. And the minute I said yes, I wanted to put it back into my mouth because I was like, why did I, why did you, you just said yes, you're not ready, you don't know enough, what are you doing, who do you think you are? And I think women it, encounter that imposter syndrome a lot, you know, like, oh, no, I'm not ready, I couldn't possibly do that. No, 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 I'm not, no, 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 not me, not me, not me. <laughs> and, but I had already said yes, so I was like stuck and I had to do it and and I was good and I knew I was good at it. And uh, I, I, one of my mentors who directed a lot of Desperate Housewives, David Grossman, he came on set and I was like, would you just be on set? Because what if I fuck up the lens choice? Whatever. He goes, you're not, that's not your job, by the way. Uh, you know, your job is to get performances. Da, da, da. And after we wrapped the DP and, and that director goes, I think this is your calling. And they really like gave me that confidence of like, awesome. You belong. This is, you know what you're doing, man, man. Do you know what you're doing? You know, a lot more than you think, you know, and I was like, really? Okay. And then I did it again. And then I did it again. And then, you know, cut to now where, you know, 10 years later, I've been directing and this is my first feature length um, documentary in my feature length film. Which we, which comes to La Guerra Civil. How, how did this project come to, together? Like, I mean, how did it, you know, no one had ever done a boxing documentary about you know, Mexican-American that I know of, at least Any, anything major. Um, I mean, there's I mean, there's a, a Muhammad Ali one for every five, every five minutes. There's a new Muhammad Ali documentary and they're all fantastic. Um, and then there's a Mike Tyson there and then Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray yeah. and everything. But never really about the Latino, you know, which has a, a fame in boxing. Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus oh, Christ. Uh, yeah. So yeah, everybody goes, did you grow up with boxing? I go, I'm Mexican. Of course I grew up with boxing. Like it's in our blood. We have to, you have to. Um, but no, you know, Oscar, I've known Oscar for 25 years. Oscar right. and I have been friends. The, he was one of the first people I met when I moved to Hollywood. Me, Mario Lopez and Oscar De La Hoya were like the little rascals. We ran around in Hollywood. It just <laughs> caused trouble. And this was 25 years ago. And, um, and so he called me and he was like, Hey, uh, there's the, this is the 25th anniversary of that fight um can you direct the documentary about it we want to do a documentary about the how I, how iconic the fight was and i said oh god what do you mean no like a boxing doc like jabs and punches and stuff like no no i don't want to do that i said but you know it's so funny i remember that fight dividing my household like i remember that fight causing so much ruckus within our community and and, and the fighting and then the you know, we couldn't get the fight because it was closed circuits. You had to go to a bar and then kids couldn't go. And it was like it was a whole thing and people, the betting in Vegas and the odds. And I was just like, what is happening? Whoa, what is happening? And it was just, I think, the biggest fight we've ever had in in the golden age of boxing. I mean, that that time, which was oh. Mike Tyson era, the Mike Tyson era, you know, the De La Hoya era, the Julio era, you know, it was huge. It was huge. Um and I said, that's interesting to me to explore is through the lens of what does it mean to be Mexican enough? And, right. and how do you navigate your identity as a Mexican-American? That is something I know. You know, I straddle the hyphen every single day of my life. And people go, oh, you're, you're half Mexican, half American. And I go, no, I'm 100% Mexican and 100% American at the same time. And these two things can always be true. Um, and so I knew Oscar navigated that because um, when he won the gold medal for the Olympics, 
Um, he had a, an, um, he won, he wins the gold medal for the USA and he goes into the ring and holds a Mexican flag up. So he has the American flag and the Mexican flag. And I remember that moment too. And I remember swelling with pride and going, Oh my God, that's me. So, oh, so you can celebrate being Mexican. You don't have to hide it, you know, and, and all the Mexican people in the United States embraced Oscar in that moment. They were like, he's ours. You know, what pride the Mexican president called him invited him to Los Pinos, which is the Mexican White House. Um, there was a parade in Mexico for him. And so every fight he had after that, that was his audience. That was his supporters. Those were his people until he challenged Julio. And when he challenged Julio, the Mexican community goes, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Ow. Yeah, you're not that Mexican. You know, that's a, he's Mexican. You're not that Mexican. And then he was like, what? Wait, he's Mexican. What? He's Mexican Jesus. He was Mexican yeah. Jesus. Yes, he was. He's like, he's, you can't touch him. You can't touch Julio. He's our campeón de México, you know, el campeón del mundo. And, sí. and so that's the lens in which I wanted to explore this particular fight, because I think that we still encounter this today. We're not a, we're not a monolithic group. I get that. We're very, we have a lot of differences, but we have bigger fights to fight outside of the ring as a Latino community. So whether you're Puerto Rican or Cuban or Central American or Argentinian or Venezuelan or Mexican, there is a collective aggregation that has to happen if we're going to have a, a, a political power, buying power. You know, if we're going to flex any sort of muscle, we have to do it together. And so we can't concentrate on how we're different mm -hmm. in order to make change. We have to focus on what what we have in common and, and, and the common goal, which is like we should have access to voting. We should have access to health care. We should have access to equal education. There's stuff we need to come together on. And so, you know, the beginning of the documentary starts with those differences. It's, you know, the 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 old, you know, the old lion against the young buck and the the Mexican national against the Mexican American and the the guy from the Pueblo against the golden boy. And the fight really promoted those differences because boxing is a sport that has never shied away from using race, right? <laughs> like it, it's, it's leaned into it, if anything, or nationality, you know, the, the Italian against the, the Irish guy, right. you know, and the black guy against the Puerto Rican and the, you know, and so, um, it did the same thing in this fight without understanding the civil war it would cause because of the nuances. They thought it was just two Mexican fighters, you know, heading head to head, but it was much more than that. Oh, and I, I mean, I've, I, in, in my culture, in, in the Cuban community, it's very similar. I'm, I'm a first generation Cuban you know, from Miami and, you know, my parents came over and, you know, you, 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 it's exactly the same thing. There's Cubans and there's Cubans Americans and how you, how they deal with it. Are you Cuban enough? You know, like I still remember watching uh, in the Heights and I saw a flan on screen and I, I lost my mind. I was like, I've never seen a flan in a movie before. And I'm like, I can't believe the flan impacted me so much. But you never see that kind of stuff out there. It was just really interesting. But I understood when I was watching it, I just understood it so cl so clear. And there's a lot of those issues that separate Cuban Americans from Cubans and all this kind of stuff as well, which is which is crazy. Um, is. We all have it. Every community has it. The Puerto Ricans in New York, you know, don't oh, yeah. like the in Miami, you know, <laughs> the Islander, the island Puerto Ricans are different than the New York. New Yorkans, and then you know you have it in the Cuban community, in the Cuban American community, and then you have it in the Mexican community. 
you know, we really do a lot to, we don't need to do so much to separate. The world does it for us, (laughs) right? Right. Like, that's that's it's like throwing a few more obstacles on our on our path it's like let's it's not it's not hard enough let's throw a few more things on our path which is is always fun we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show you know what i found really interesting about watching julio and oscar both of them seem so and I don't mean this in a derogatory, they seem sweet. They're, yeah. They seem sweet. They seem like, you know, because I've seen boxing documentaries and a lot of these boxers, they're just brute barbarians sometimes in the way they speak and they're not articulate. But Julio and Oscar both are, they, they seem so sweet that they almost kind of both fell into it. Like, it's just kind of like, oops, I guess I'm going to box. Kind of like you, like, oh, I guess I'm going to act. And it just seemed that way. And I saw that kind of energy from, especially Julio, which I wasn't expecting. He seems so sweet. And and I'm like, but he was, he was a killer in in the ring. But it's just like, I think he disconnected the two. He's like, I'm a sweet guy, but I go to work. Yeah. Did you find that as well? 100%. 100%. And, you know, like I said, I've known Oscar for 25 years, right. so I, I know he's sweet and I know him well. I didn't know Julio. Was, I didn't know Julio. I'd never, I'd never met him. And I fell in love with him. He is such a truth teller, mm-hmm. which is interesting in a documentary about your life, about uh, something that happened in your life. You could pretty much have revisionist history like, oh, I, uh, I, I wasn't bothered by that. No, no. You know, of course I won that fight. I wasn't whining about it. And he was like, yeah, I was, there was no way at that moment I was going to say I lost, even though I knew I did. I knew I had lost, but I wasn't going to say it, you know, and you're like, wow. Um, so yeah. it felt like he had 2020 looking, 2020 vision looking back at that fight. He was so open and vulnerable about his uh, obstacles to fame, his uh, addiction, his um, lack of preparation and if for other fights, you know, he's like, look, I December is my party month. I wasn't about to fight in January, but it was nine million dollars. So I was going to fight. You know, he is very candid and vulnerable and and kind. And it wasn't until 10 years after those fights that he finally gave Oscar the, the credit that was due. Um, and then an Oscar side, people, everybody who watches doc goes, oh, my God, my heart. I cried for Oscar. I didn't know he had that much pain going into that fight. Right. Right. He was he was hurt. And then revisiting that, he's like, God, it still makes me mad. Like, he was still mad. As we were interviewing him, I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, God, that, oh, I'm so mad just thinking about that, you know, getting booed in East L.A. Like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Come on. You know, <laughs> so painful so, for both to revisit. Well, it. it's, a, it's a beautiful film. I absolutely loved watching it. Um, And, and congrats on getting into Sundance. That must be so exciting. And, and you get to. That opening night is a film directed by a Chicana about two Mexican boxers like this progress. This is progress. Let's 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 uh, savor it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I have a couple questions to ask all my guests. What advice would you give a filmmaker uh, or screenwriter or an actor trying to make it in today's business? Yeah, I think you have to define for yourself. What does make it mean? You know, famous. So I want to be famous. Okay, well then go cure cancer because you're you're gonna be real famous. Do you know what I mean like? By the way, that might be easier than <laughs> industry. Yeah, yep, but yep. it is. It is like um, 
you know, figure out what, what, what do you mean by that? Like, I really, I really love directing. I love the creative process. I love, I don't, I, 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 for this film, I just loved exploring this thematically and going through the archival footage and did it. And I, and now that it's at Sundance, I'm like, oh my God, that's, oh yeah, that's a big deal. And then the reviews, I go, oh my God, we get reviewed. I totally, I didn't even think about that. Like I, I didn't do it for that. So if I had started this documentary going, I'm going to get good reviews. I'm going to get into Sundance. Like you have to have goals, but like that, that has to be like a product, a byproduct of really good work. And good work only happens when you're passionate about it. And so if you want to be an actor because you want to be famous, then I don't, I don't think if you want to be a writer because you want to be rich, that ain't going to happen for a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, so define what does make it mean for you. And the other thing is just do it, do it. I, I know so many people go, I'm a writer. I go, oh, show me your script. Well, I haven't written anything. Well, then you're not a writer. Write something, write a gross list. I don't care, but like write something. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a director. Shoot something on your iPhone. Shoot Absolutely. it, shoot it. Work with actors, figure it out. Put some lights up. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a producer. What have you done? Nothing. Well, the producers of anything can do anything. So, um, do it. You got to do it. You only learn by doing. And now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Um, it didn't take me. Well, I think um, a lesson to learn that that I know that I'm qualified and I know what I'm doing. I mean, every time I get a, a, a directing gig, I have butterflies in my stomach. I go, oh God, I hope I know what I'm doing. Like, I still think that. You mean imposter and, syndrome, like imposter syndrome. Yeah, like imposter syndrome of like, am I good enough? Right. Oh my gosh, you know, in directing Flaming Hot. I mean, this is the this is a big budget movie I just directed and going, oh my God. I'm so excited to see it, by the way. <laughs> I know, I'm like, I'm in charge of how much money? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and I remember doing my presentation when I had to get the job and I'm, you know, I think the movie needs to be this and it needs to be this. And we're, you know, we should do this and da, da, da. And then I finished the pitch and my agent calls me later. She goes, what, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm really nervous. I'm going to get it and have to do everything I said. <laughs> I'm like, These are pipe dreams. I don't know. I'm like, then there's a drone and we're going to have a techno crane and we're going to do this shot and it's going to look like the matrix, you know, whatever it is. And then, great. Go do that. And I'm like, oh, I have to do it now. Oh, OK. Um, so, yeah, it's like that lesson of like, no, you're ready. You're ready. You're going to be fine. And you're going to fall down and you're going to make mistakes. And then you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again and again and again. Um, and so just that's probably the biggest lesson. And the other mantra that I live by is is Maya Angelou's quote of like, people will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so I'm navigating my life, whether it's with my gardener or president of the United States or, you know, to make sure every interaction you have with people or my crew, you know, your, your crew, your prop guy, your boom guy, your DP, like making everybody feel and not that it's my job, but I just want them to feel appreciated and valued and that they have talent. And and I, I appreciate you being here and helping elevate my vision because, you know, directing is not singular. It's it's just this whole crew of people. And I meet so many people who go, oh, I don't want to work with them because I, I or I, I didn't like that person. I don't I don't like that person. I'm like, you're, there's a lot of people you're not going to like in this industry that you're going to have to work with. So, you know, hey, get your tough skin, get put your big boy pants on, get some tough skin. 
and and flip it, you know, and that's what meditation helps too, is like everybody I encounter today, I want them to feel good and leave an encounter with me in in a positive way, even if it's a tough conversation, even if it's I have to fire somebody or I have to, you know, correct somebody on an edit or give notes on a script, like, you know, doing yeah. it in a way that they leave that experience going, okay, okay, I'm good. This is a good talk that wasn't anything negative, you know? Well, I want to, first of all, I think you are a absolute force of nature. Um, and thank you so much for everything you do. And for my, my twin daughters, they say, they said, tell you, thank you for Dora. Uh, they, they loved it and watch it all the time. So thank you so much for that. I love that movie. I love oh. that. I, I, I saw it in the theaters with them. I went to the theaters with them and it was back when you used to do things like that. Um, but I do appreciate you and thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show and continued success. And I, and I hope this movie gets out and is seen by everybody. It's such a wonderful film. So thank you again so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Eva so much for coming on the show and dropping her knowledge bombs on the tribe. Thank you again, Eva. And please do check out La Guerra Cival when it comes to a screen near you. It is really a great documentary. Now, if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 271. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 